Welcome back to the podcast, The Stephen Sully Study. I'm here at my second home, Woodbury House Art Gallery over in Mayfair, and I've got a really, really inspiring guest in front of me, Mr. Mike Green. Thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. So, you are an art collector. You being an yeah. art collector, walking through our establishment in Mayfair, this is a bit of a plug, a bit cheesy, yeah, but... Yeah, what did you think of the gallery and what did you think about some of the street artists? Well, I'm an art collector, but I've also done a lot of property. And to me, I'm a, I love architecture. It's a really cool place to come into. So I was immediately struck by it's in a cool street. It's a great building. It's obviously got a lot of history. But the power of the paintings that you got here, because they're not um, uh, they're not typical of what you see in a lot of galleries, but they're really powerful. And, and they have a sort of simplicity to them a depth that makes you want to look further into them and then when you told me a couple of stories about the artists that made me interested as well because it's a bit like i've been on some wine tastings in the past and you think yes it tastes all right but if they then tell you the story of the vineyard and how they make it and all that the romance or the story behind it re or connects me at a different level and so to me i don't just buy into a picture i buy into the artist i buy into the what they were trying to achieve or what they were thinking at that time uh and that changes over time, actually. So I think art is um, is very personal, like wine, I guess, is very personal. We like it or we don't like it. But no, they're great, great art you've got here. Really interesting stuff. I definitely resonate with that. Um, I have <clears throat> frequent conversations with collectors and fanatics all the time, which is if you look at a piece of art for the first time, you might like it, might dislike it, or you might be kind of in, in between. The moment you learn about the story, the narrative, the genre, it shapes your taste buds and I think that's a really really important yeah. uh, a, important thing that collectors must go through in order to really appreciate a piece of art on the wall so I'm going to talk to you all about your background businesses mentoring positive attitude mindset all that all that good stuff you're partly uh, let's say have a really good digital footprint because of your TV appearance on channel 4's the secret millionaire yep so bit of a personal direct question clearly if you were on the secret millionaire you have to be a millionaire how much is your net worth uh, uh, uh it's it's nine figures yeah okay. i'll leave it at that okay uh, no sorry let me recollect eight figures i'm not at nine figures i'm targeting nine it's eight figures all right good stuff Comfortable. Um, yeah. so my next question then is I think it's a cool thing to do something on TV. Yeah. I would be up for it myself in years to come, maybe. But why did you decide to go into Secret Millionaire? Well, it's an interesting story there, actually, because I've got a mate, great mate um, who was in retail. I was in retail at the time, and I'd built successfully through retail. Then I'd built a consultancy, and with a partner called Tom, we built it globally. So we'd already built a level of wealth. But it was a surprise when it went out to many of my customers because they wouldn't have realized just how much I had. I mean, you've got a big house and... You, 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 I had it then. You can, you could see that there was a lot of wealth there already. But anyway, JJ, this mate, uh, I was in Australia building our business over there, and I get this call from him, and um, he changed his mind slightly because uh, he was living very locally to a lot of his retail business, and and I think sensitively, if if you got retail people, would be thinking, oh, has he made his money off of me kind of thing? And Mrs. Miggins is thinking, oh, your milk's expensive because you make money out of me, kind of rip off Britain kind of concerns. Now, 
he would never have to worry about that because he does so much for the community. He puts a lot back anyway. But he 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 decided not to do it, and they then were, were then short and needed someone pretty quick. So I get this call. Uh, I said, yeah, all right, I'll talk to him. But I hadn't seen what it was, so I looked at it in uh, on catch up telly, and I thought that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, generally they were going to charities and helping out people, charities, uh, uh, interests in need. Two. Um, I was already a behavioural profiler and interested in behaviour and its impact. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like to go back to the kind of stuff that I went through when we were growing up in poverty. You know, I have to say I only went to school because that's where I got a cooked meal kind of thing often and uh, it made the difference. So there's lots of reasons why I thought I'd be interested to do it. I didn't realize how much it would affect me and it did lead to me selling all my business interests thereafter. I retired at 46, 2012, thought I'd never work again, but I, you know, Leopard can't change its spots. I like business, I like building stuff, I like being busy. busy. So after about nine months driving my wife crazy, my kids crazy, myself crazy, I got back into business. But no, they asked me to do it, I did it. Um, I was really lucky because I'm the only person I know from the show who was able to do it near to where they lived and where I grew up. And I was able to do that because I'd spent so much time working everywhere but Peterborough for the sort of 10 years prior, um, literally all around the world. But so nobody really would have known me in that area other than my family and we weren't going anywhere where the family were. So because one of my conditions was I will only do it if I can be close enough to the charities geographically to keep in touch because I didn't want to kind of like touch their lives and walk away. So, because money's a big thing to give anyone or charity, but time commitment um, uh, influence can be even bigger in changing those lives and those charities and those people. So yeah, I kept in touch with the charities that I worked with on the program as well. I actually watched the uh, the uh, the episode this morning, just to have a recap. I remember seeing it some, some time ago, um, 2011. I mean, bloody hell, where's that time gone? Yeah. It's gone so quickly. Um, I'm interested in the psychology of this. Going on to a TV program, which was watched by millions, and because there was some emotional connection there for the audience, and there's certain elements that probably resonate with a lot of people around the country. I mean, I don't care whether someone's rich or poor. When you see stuff going on like that with the hostel and also with, you know, the charitable work there. Then you donated money and you were giving advice to some of the, those young people. You even helped one guy write his CV. I don't care who you are. That, that That's quite a, a, a thing that people can resonate with. How did your life change when you <clears throat> appeared on TV? So, I mean, obviously it's called The Secret Millionaire and the perverse thing is the moment it's aired is no secret anymore. So, because um, I... Look, look, I had nice house, nice cars and stuff, but I didn't splash the cash in terms of throwing it around. I, I always considered myself quite generous. And even before that, my wife and I almost, and still do, had a superstitious belief that we've got to give away 10% of whatever we make. And it's like feeding that pump. If we, if we stop giving, are we going to stop getting kind of thing? So it, I, I do it. It makes me feel good. Um, yeah, and, and, and I have superstitious beliefs around it. 
But what I hadn't realized is it's, it's about 14 days of filming and you are completely detached from your family. You're given the equivalent of dole money, which I think at the time was 68 quid to live on for the week. So, you know, you break that down, you're going to get nine pound a day or seven pound a day. And of course you think because you come back from, or I came from that background. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what that's like. I've been there. It's bloody tough. And that starts to affect you. And then they, they, they obviously want it to look like you're living in, dodgy place so they go to an estate agent and you say look give us the shittest house you've got on your books kind of thing and the estate agent say oh well, we've got this one but it ain't been cleaned up yet sort of thing so oh no that'll be perfect kind of thing so you know there's literally hairs in the bath and like mold in the bloody sink and so you're away from your family you got no money 14 days living in a shithole on your own because the crew will bugger off about nine ten o'clock and then you're just left with your thoughts about what's happened that day, the kind of questions they've asked you. And they're quite um, interrogative questions that make you think about, yeah, my dad was like that, or yeah, we did have to go through that, and so on. So it was it, it was a voyage of self-discovery, albeit that the directors are bringing it out in you, if you like. Um, and of course then, once it's aired, um, you get thousands of begging letters and that has quite a um, substantial impact on you as well because you know everyone's trying to get their money and what good cause isn't a good cause you know all of them you mean oh that, that sounds really good we could make it oh that sounds really good we could make a difference kind of thing but it starts to have a psychological impact on you because you can't help everybody and so a previous lady who had been a secret millionaire a lady called marcel speller is incredible inspiration um loads of energy uh and she'd done a lot and she said to me uh mike you know do you want to come and be an ambassador of localgiving.com you can help other charities it'll give you some focus but also i recommend the institute of philanthropy which you think is there such a thing and what they taught me was how to set a strategy for giving now this is really an interesting stuff because you think that sounds a bit kind of counter you know it's a contradiction to have a strategy for giving sort of thing that surely you should just give because they deserve but for me it was important that i wasn't just giving into some pot that was going to be nicked off by dodgy people along the way or it wasn't going to make a difference so you know we built a strategy that said we'll only ever give to charities within 20 miles there's 520 odd within 20 miles of where i live we'd only give to charities where we can see the difference that money makes and where we've had a look at how that money is going to be spent because there are some of the biggest charities in the uk today that spend millions tens of millions on their boards you know, we think some of these board members are being philanthropic in their time. Many of them are earning millions. There might be invest, you know, it came out a few years ago, some cancer charities were investing in tobacco companies to make their money make money. You know, so to me, it was important to understand are, is the integrity and the qualities of these charities uh, what it should be all the way through. So it... It made me look at my life. It made me think about what I was doing. It made me realize I could carry on earning loads more money, but it, I'd got to a level where it was never gonna make that much difference to the way I lived. I had enough. I wasn't seeing my kids enough. It made me realize that, hence the selling the business. Um, and it made me connect with charity community in a big way. So today I'm an ambassador for children, Cambridge Children's Hospital. I do that as a charity and we support Maggie's Cancer Charities. Um, I'm also uh, chairman of the Chamber of Commerce for Peterborough and Stamford. So that's giving back to the community in a business sense, trying to help businesses. I mentor a lot of businesses. So now I've got this kind of perfect marriage of business that helps people 
with advice, sometimes with money and so on. It's a good mix. Mm. What about the the fame which kind of come with being on TV? I'll tell you why I asked this question. Um, you may know him. James Concertino. It took me a while to pronounce his surname and I'll probably even mess that up. He um, is uh, posh porn, porn right, brokers. Right, right, yeah. And he was obviously just, a, I say just, he was a businessman that owned pawnbrokers, maybe a couple at the time. <clears throat> they end up doing this TV program, which I think is even still running today or it's going to yeah, be yeah, re- yeah. relaunched. And he said, from the moment that, if well, the moment it aired for the first time, you know, and a couple of days or weeks went by, his, you know, the, the, the kind of fame status just, just jumped up. Now, I know it's slightly different, but what was that like, you know, being noticed a lot more because you was on this TV programme? Um, th- there's always swings and roundabouts. It is good. So people will, you know, in a, I was doing a lot of public speaking at the time. So sometimes people say, oh, can you come and speak for us? And I'm thinking, I want to talk about business. But no, no, talk about secret millionaire kind of thing. I didn't mind that because I can talk about other stuff. But it starts to very much pigeonhole you in some ways. So if you're seen like Joe, as the as we both know, as the apprentice or Mike as the secret millionaire or Greg Wallace, who, who, who I've mentored a bit, uh, as the foodie, um, it can pigeonhole you a little bit and and that's not a positive side of it but also people feel the upside is they feel they know you so you can break down barriers if you like but they think they know you and actually their knowledge of you is from one hour or one program or one series and so on so it's quite limiting uh you have to be a bit more careful about going out and getting absolutely smashed drunk if you do that occasionally and I less now but used to um no, no, overall it's been a wonderful positive to my life and I've really enjoyed it but more because it it helped me realize what I wanted from life it did have a big impact on me uh the celebrity bit less so I mean I always think take Greg as an example he's a wonderful man Greg Wallace but Everywhere he goes, if I meet him for lunch or that, he gets absolutely mobbed. You know, we were out to dinner uh, last week with Nigel Farage, who who I know, obviously, um, from the politics side, and he was up in Peterborough. He gets absolutely mobbed. Now, they, they kind of accept that goes with their celebrity turf, if you like, but I would always rather be wealthy and unknown than wealthy and never able to be unknown. If you like, I mean, look this um, this sort of ongoing question and, and conversation is is what I've been having in my head for a long time, and also with certain people. So I want to just share it with yeah, you. Yeah. The Alfie Bess, the Charlie Mullins, the you know maybe, maybe your good self as well, Mike, um, Rob Moore. They they purposely put themselves out there so they can get really well known get a great following and then directly or indirectly kind of monetize it but obviously giving value to his customers audience at the same time yeah, yeah. don't think there's nothing it's a great business move there's nothing malicious and I'm, I'm kind of following trying to follow the same sort of route but there are other people out there that are very successful maybe as successful maybe not as successful but they're completely stealth like you don't even know they're involved yeah. with the businesses and they don't put themselves above the parapet at all. What ways 
the right way to go around business and what way is the kind of wrong way to go around business? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. And um, about 15, 20 years ago, because I had a research business uh, that basically tracked shoppers and uh, it was in retail, wholesale, manufacturing, I, be, I got into behavioral profiling. I was always interested in it, even growing up. Why do people do what they do? But I wanted to become a behavioral profiler because I thought it would help interpret the data of the research business I had. One of the biggest realizations of that is there are four very distinct core behaviors. There's then subsets. So we're all completely individual, like a like a fingerprint. No two people are exactly the same behaviorally. Um, but what it made me realize is we often go through life thinking, if I'm more like that person, uh, I'll be successful. Or if that person were more like me, they'd have more friends because they're a bit bloody grumpy or whatever it is. But when you do behavioral profiling, I think everyone should do a degree of it, not not a degree, but a bit of it in school, because you suddenly realize that Chris ain't like me, but he's a good bloke. Stephen ain't like me, but he's a good bloke. And actually, we're just very different people. Because of that, they turn into different business leaders. So, you know, you're going to get this business leader who, who wants to stand back a little bit and push his team forward. You're going to get other business leaders who, who want to be front center in there. Uh, and to me, they're all just different behavioral types. Some people wouldn't be successful if it wasn't for the attention it gets them. Other people want the success because they want the security. Uh, they, they want to provide for others or whatever, but they don't want to be seen or known. And you know, probably like yourself on the podcast and that, some people will say, no, I just don't want to share that. I've got a great mate who's uh, got a really fantastic business. Uh, he's a Sikh bloke. Uh, he would be the most incredible inspiration to everybody, but particularly the Sikh community who work really hard for success. So, but he just doesn't want to uh, put himself out there that much. And I completely respect it. That's a bit cultural. It's a little bit behavioral, but we're all different. And I think vive la difference. You know, I like the, you're young, much younger than me, but I don't know if you've ever heard of or read or seen the Midwich Cuckoos or, or Stepford Wives, those kind of books where everyone's perfect, let's say. They're all the same. And um, in, if we were all the same, it would be a very boring world. But also... In my, I wrote a book called Failure Breed Success, and one of the methods I talk about is the Marita method. Shoma Marita was a Japanese philosopher. And the underlying principle was we are all perfectly imperfect. It is our imperfections that make us human and make us different. If we were all perfect, perfection suggests there's only one perfection, in effect, because that's perfect, that's, where, that's the point. We'd all be the same. If we're all the same, none of us would want to live. So I think I just embrace it takes all types. My podcast is about saying these are the systems that this particular type of leader uses and that makes him successful. These are the systems that type uses and that makes her successful or whatever. But it's just different. We can, and, and that in itself should be an inspiration to people that they don't have to be like someone else, but they can emulate some of the behaviors that person had to make them successful but they are perfectly imperfect just as they are they don't have to be someone else i resonate with that so to become uh on a candidate for the secret millionaire on channel four clearly you've had to you've got to be a success and looking at your wikipedia page for example 
it says that you were the founder of the Association of Retail News Agents. <clears throat> um, I know you mentioned about selling off at 46 years of age, retiring, etc. And now you're involved with loads of different businesses and you've, you've even gone into to politics, I can see, which yeah. we'll get onto. Tell me more about the Association of Retail News Agents. Is it as simple as you owned a load of news agents around the country? No, no. I, I Because I was into retail and that, that came from when I was at school, it was like, what what's the best job I could be? And so, you know, I looked at bank managers, oh, they earn lots of money kind of thing. And uh, in... In my fifth form, the last year of ordinary school, I did an insight into banking. It was the most boring bloody six weeks of my life. I couldn't stand it. You know, that's not to say I've got I've got a lot of banker friends, but that's different people again. They loved it. I hated it. I couldn't understand why anyone would do it. But it made me realise, because I was a paperboy and a Saturday lad in retail, having the comparison made me realise I loved retail. So I built a very successful retail career over time. I then became a member of the Association of Convenience Stores, uh, which represents uh, about 35,000 convenience stores in the UK, little corner shops, uh, anything from a petrol station shop to a newsagent and so on. I became their youngest ever chairman, the only person in their history to be chairman twice, and I was on the board for 20 years. But along the way, an unrepresentative sector of that was news agents specifically. So we saw that there was a few agencies like that were groups of news agents, but basically we rolled them up into a new brand and I, I created the Association of News Retailing, which then the ACS bought in. So it was it was more a case of copying what was already happening in the ACS because I could see the benefits. It was it was an organisation lobbying government to make sure corner shops, which are important, were, were not all overtaken or, or run out of business by supermarkets. And equally, I wanted to see the same thing happen for news agents. Uh, news is consumed differently now and bought differently now. But back then, you know, your local newspaper was your connection to the world and what was going on in the world and the country. So it was important. And so it was about representing them. And both of those roles I did completely voluntary. They never paid me a penny. Okay. And I did it because I loved it and because it, it was complementary to what I was doing. And it, it's not fame, there's no celebrity in it, but it, it helped my... Uh, network and the degree to which I was known within retail generally as well so there was always an upside yeah I also read that you are the founder of my local which is an organization that tried to save Morrison's now I didn't read into this on purpose too much because I want to get first-hand information um, I was actually quite unaware that Morrison's was going through major challenges so what does that mean you, you know you, your organization my local try to save Morrison's? Yeah, so, I mean, that sounds much grander than it was. Basically, Morrison's an amazing supermarket with a great leader called Dave Potts, and I did a podcast with him uh, a month or two ago. Great guy, he, got, he did five O-levels, got F in all of them, but now he's the CEO, he's an amazing guy. But at the time, uh, I'd done all the convenience store work and the ACS and everything else. They had a network of a couple of hundred small stores because they'd gone into the small source small store sector just like tesco express and sainsbury's local and everything else but it was failing for them it wasn't part of their core business um it is hard to scale down from big to small uh running the way you run a supermarket is very different to the way you run a convenience store so i put together a team uh with a uh, uh 
billionaire fund, if you like, uh, and bought those shops because they were, in effect, starting to close them down. They were going to make two and a half thousand people redundant and so on. I mean, as it happened, we failed at that. And that was an interesting period in my life as well. One of the books I wrote even before that was Failure Breeds Success because we learn from our failure. Everything you've ever been good at, you're shit at to start with. You know, learning to walk, you get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down. Learning to ride a bike, you're going to fall off a bit. You know, even paint, you know, it's going to be shit at first and then you're going to find your style. Um, in that sense, we lost, I don't know, 35 million quid. So that was a big lesson. But really interestingly, the funds I worked with, when they said it was a turnaround, so it was already failing, let's give it a chance, try and fix it, protect those jobs, but also fix, fix the business. It, the, the funds talked about their eternal burn. So they, they take failing business and they either turn it around, make it all good, or they burn it. It's like, it's very black and white in that sense. It's a bit like if you took a, ho- a horse, you wanted to run races with it, so either you're going to be a thoroughbred or a nag, you're going to make some decisions, okay? Same goes on in business. About eight months in, it was starting to make a little bit of money, but we're talking like one or two percent. Well, on a billion quid, that's still a lot sort of thing, but it wasn't enough. And and the guy said to me, Mike, um, we know you could, you'd give your whole life trying to make this work, but we got in this to make three times our money, not three percent. And we're going to wind this up now because it's just not working and we don't believe it's going to work. And they'd been doing this generationally, for, so they knew their stuff. And what they said was, so it's time to wind it up. We're going to do it as elegantly and intelligently as we possibly can. So, for instance, we're then left with 2,000 staff. Uh, and they said elegantly, because they could just walk away and sell it. They had no reason not to. It's, it would have been a failure, but they've had lots of other big successes. But what they then said is, there's a churn in supermarkets, it's like 10% of the staff each year change jobs, move, leave, retire, whatever. We could rehouse all of these people. So even though we're competing with them at the moment, having made the decision to wind this up, we should be going to Tesco's and Sainsbury's and Co-op and Asda and saying to them, we've got 2,000 amazing staff here. They're really well trained. They're some of the best in the industry. We know you'll have jobs. Can you give them first priority? Because... This is what's happening in the business. Can you help them? And it was really interesting to see how even competing companies will come together if you speak to them. You know, historically, I'd have thought, no, you can't go to them. They're the competitors. They'll tell us to fuck off, you know. But no, their HR team's absolutely got on it. We helped those people, the ones that wanted to, to get another job, to move on. We wound that business up. And failure is not the opposite of success. Failure is one of the ingredients that is necessary to make world-class success. And if you're scared of failure, I think you'll never be truly successful. And the problem is we do get more scared as we get older. We become more conscious. I've got this. I don't want to lose it. But if you don't ever take that risk, you never really live. So to me, it's just I've had failures. uh, I mean, 27, me and my wife uh, went bankrupt and we lost our house. So we were homeless and then we were delivering pizzas for two years on mopeds. And that's when I started reading more and more books by Richard Branson and and Les Brown and people like this. Um, And that if I hadn't had that failure, I would not have read all those books. If I hadn't read all those books, I wouldn't have got a much stronger resolve, a better attitude. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have built the businesses that I then built. And now I understand that I'll get success, 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 failure, failure, success, success, failure. It, 
It's just the way stuff happens. And if you ever meet a truly successful person and ask them, have you ever failed at anything? If they say no, I think they're fucking lying. They just don't want to air their dirty washing in public, which is a very British thing. In America, if you go to chapter 11, which is bankruptcy, that's considered like an apprenticeship. Thank God he's done that. We ain't going to do that again. It's a bit like when I've been trekking in the pool. You know, there's an open fire in the middle of the room and the kids will be wandering around the babies. I say, oh, baby, the fire. And they say, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. No, but he'll burn himself. He'll only do it once. You know, you learn from that kind of hurt, that kind of failure. We should embrace it as part of our apprenticeship of life rather than being so scared we never do anything. So many people like, go through their lives being would have, could have, should have, but didn't because I was scared. Yeah. And failure is one of the things they're scared of. In, and sorry to reference this all the time, but it's just fresh in my, in my mind. And obviously on the program, when they introduced you, they, they, they do this narrative like they do with anything, whether they're selling a story in the news or they're promoting a book <clears> or whatever. And they, they were like, Mike Green, secret millionaire, multimillionaire. He lives in a seven bedroom mansion. I remember this, hearing that and thinking that's really really cool but is that is that all part of the tv and trying to trying to pump it up and just before we started you mentioned to me that there was a stint living in the caravan now mm. there's nothing wrong with living in the caravan i've had plenty of good guests on my podcast who have lived in caravans such as mr alfie alfie best who is one of the most successful ones yeah, 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 I know. Guy, and being a boxer myself, I've had lots of boxers on who are also travellers and have, have, have had stints living in, in, in caravans. So my question to you is this. Living in a caravan, seven-bedroom mansion, which one at the time, now in reflection, was made you happier? I'm extremely happy now. And one of the things, people often say, money won't make you happy. And I'll say, well, I've never had an argument with my wife about having too much money. You know, and actually, I'm not a religious person, but, um, you know, the saying, my cup overfloweth. To me, if your cup overflows, you can give some away. So if your confidence overflows, give someone else your confidence. If your knowledge, you're full of it, you've got loads of it, share some of that knowledge. If you've got more money than you need, you can give money to others. If you live a kind of simple life where you don't optimize who you can be, and like, I want to go to my deathbed having used every bit of bloody life energy potential in me that I could have. Um, so the trappings of success make me comfortable. They make me happy. It's a bit like a nice watch or a nice car. Does it make me feel 1% better, 2% better, 5% better? I don't know, but it does make me happy. And if it makes me happy, I'm more confident. If I'm more confident, I become more successful. Um, when I was at school, I would be beaten up for being scruffy. Uh, you know, we used to help out at, at, at the car boots now, but they used to be called jumble sales. We'd help out to get the best, because you get first pickings if you're one of the helpers. You get in there before the customers come in. Uh, I had an older sister. Sometimes you get a hand-me-down jumper from an older sister. The hand-me-downs are bad enough without being from a sister kind of thing when you're a boy. So I got bullied a lot, and I never wanted to be broke. I never wanted to be hungry. I never wanted to just feel poor. And there's nothing wrong with those things. You know, in my book, chapter one is called First Defined Success. And my younger brother, who used to tour with a prodigy, arranged a lot of the illegal raves of the 80s and that, uh, 
drink, drugs, everything else. Um, 22 years ago, he went traveling to India and found his soul. And eight years ago, he stopped drinking. And, you know, he's in an amazing place now. He's got one of the most successful restaurants in Goa, uh, Garden of Dreams. It's always in the top 10 of, 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 Airbnb, uh, of um, TripAdvisor and so on. But he can live on 25 grand a year. So you don't need a load of money to be happy. And I talk in the book about even before he had this restaurant, when he was just literally bumming on beaches and stuff, um, he was the happiest guy I'd ever known, the most successful guy I'd ever known because... He didn't feel he needed anything else. But I did feel I want... I will go to my deathbed. It's not about wanting more or wanting more money. It's about wanting to be more. You know, I want to help more people. I want to leave a legacy. You know, Stephen Covey talks about to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. To live and love and learn, you do in your lifetime. And, and, and they're very honourable. You know, he really lived. And I've crossed oceans and climbed mountains and marathons and that really live, not see it in a book or watch it on telly. You want it to love, to walk into a room and say, all these people are amazing unless they prove differently to me. Often we walk into a room and think, he's a cunt, she's all right. You know, we judge people and we look for the negative. We don't look for mm. the love. Uh, to learn, he learned 10 languages in 10 years. But what he said is, they're all things you do in your life, but I want to leave a legacy. To me, I want to be helping people long after I'm dead. Now, if that comes out of the fact that I've mentored someone who goes on to build a business uh, and their kids go on to be amazing and it somehow came back to me and something I did, that that would make me feel, if I was looking down or if, you know, if there was an afterlife, that would make me feel good. Um, sometimes part of that inspiration comes from the trappings of success. So a good example, I have a Bentley, I have a Range Rover, I have some classic cars. Yesterday, I met with an old mate uh, who's just recently bought a black Rolls Royce Ghost. It is unbelievably beautiful and rides like it floats on air. Anyway, I met him at Starbucks uh, for a coffee yesterday morning. And I said, I'll tell you what, Dave, I'll tell you what, Dave, I'm going to put a picture of this on uh, LinkedIn. I said, what frustrates me a bit sometimes is I can put some life-changing advice on LinkedIn. I Stuff I know makes a difference because... I've, I've used that advice with lots of people who have gone on to be successful with it. And I might get a thousand views or 50 likes or something like that. I said, you watch this. In 24 hours, it will get more than double any of my other normal posts just because I put a picture of our two cars together and I called it Big Daddy and Little Brother or something. Because, you know, and this morning, I met him at 10 o'clock yesterday. This morning at half nine, I sent him a picture. It had two and a half thousand views in that. Now, is that wrong? Is that shallow? Is that material? Is that bullshit? The fact is, it inspired or created a reaction for more people. So we can push against that and say we should all be living in kaftans, living in a bloody caravan, and there's nothing wrong with them if that's what you want. If you define success and that's what you want, and I talk about my brother, knowing exactly what he wants, that's successful. But a mum who wants to be a mum is successful. A nurse who wants to be a nurse is successful. A plumber who wants to be a plumber is successful. A millionaire that wants to be a billionaire is an abject failure. So to me, anything that I have that makes me feel good makes me do better. If it also then inspires other people to do better, that's got to be a good thing. So I, I, I unashamedly enjoy some of the trappings of success. On that note then, do you want to become a billionaire? No. No. Um, I, I talked earlier about Secret Millionaire and one of the things it made me realise is I had enough. And I often think, I mean, that was 
2011, so 12 years ago. I often think back and think, if that program hadn't happened, I reckon I would still be building my business internationally and getting it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Tom and I had already had millions in value out of the business and I'd done some property before that and during that and so on. So it's already wealthy. This is before we sold the business because I sold the business after um, Secret Millionaire and we did well out of that. But I think I, I was just on this sort of treadmill and you'd say, well, if I had to be on a treadmill or a hamster wheel, if it's making that much money, it's a good thing. And I realized, some people have got all that they want, all that they need, all that they um, would ever want or need, but they haven't taken the time to think about what they want or need to know that they've got enough. So when you look at that, and I also went on Anthony, you've heard of Tony Robbins, I went to his courses, and he does this thing that says, what's your perfect life? You know, where are you living? What's the house, pardon me, like? What sort of holidays do you go on? What sort of food do you eat? You know, what sort of clothes do you wear? And if you go through a process like that, you can sort of work out, I need 2 million, or I need 4 million, or I didn't just want it for me, I want it for my kids, I need 10 million. Uh, or if I can make 10% on money, which I can, you know, most people who've got a level of success know how to make 10% on any money, mixture of property and shares and investments and so on. Well, if I can get to 7 million, then I can earn seven on five to 700,000 pound a year without touching my 7 million. So it's a nice target to go for, knowing that you're, you're living off of the benefit of that money without ever eating into that net worth. But most people, they just keep on keeping on. And, and that's okay if that's what they want. But I realized I was missing my wife. I was, we've been married 30 years this year. I was missing my kids. I was starting to fuck my body up because I was working too long hours. And because I was working too long hours, often it was around meetings. It was breakfast. It was lunch. It was dinner. Dinner often was a drink. I'd have five Red Bulls in the day to keep me energy because I weren't getting enough sleep. I'd have wine at night to help me sleep because I was round, if you like. And I was just killing myself. I think if I I hadn't done Secret Millionaire, I'd kept building the business, I'd probably be dead by now. But it was a great program to make me think about what I truly wanted, what was enough. And what I do now is more about loving what I do. Because when I sold the business, people often say, what's more important, family or business, or family or money? You know, Now the answer is always family, because that's what you think you're doing it for. And I thought about this a lot since because uh, of something someone said to me when I was running the business that oh, you're shit dad you're never home sort of thing and I thought well, that's a fair point but that's like asking someone which arm do you want me to cut off now if this was family and this was business I'm right handed anyway I'd say uh, well I'll take family so cut the business off or I'm right handed so cut my left arm off but why the fuck would I want to cut my left arm off it makes me a whole person it makes me more capable and it makes me a better me a more satisfied and happy me. So equally, I come to realize after nine months of doing nothing when I sold the business, that actually I was a better father by being a role model. Uh, I was a better husband because uh, we each had our own interests that we could have and then come back together at, at the evenings or weekends. Um, I was happier because I love business. So it was finding this balance between it's enough money, but I also love doing this shit. So, and if I was do not doing it, what am I going to do? Sit at home, watch Jeremy Kyle, you know, wait to die? That's not it. It's finding the balance. And balance is a strange word because it ain't about 50-50. It's about what's right for you. That might be 70-30. That might be 30-70. But I, I think a lot about behavior. Psychology has been a big part of my life, a part of my businesses. 
and so I always think about, am I happy? What makes me happy? What would make me more happy? What could help other people be happy? What can I do that can satisfy me but help others? This kind of question. Yeah, um, you know what? As I grow older, and I'm obviously involved with this business, and there's loads of challenges here, and obviously involved with the podcast, and now I'm trying to turn it more into its own enterprise and its own business, and it's property that I do, and I've obviously got a family, got a wife and two young kids, uh, one to four, one to one years of age. And it, there's an ongoing battle all the time in my own mind. It's like, you know, get stressed about certain elements, think about am I giving enough to the family, am I give, give enough to the business? And it's always an ongoing battle, what is right or wrong. Some days I feel like I cracked it and I, I feel like I'm in that groove. Other days I really do feel like not only am I letting my family down, my business down, but also myself down. And and, and it's this ongoing thing. Um, and I, I was going to ask you that same question. What is the perfect work-life balance? Um, my business partner used to have Tom that built HIM Research together. We used to joke that you've got to get work-life balance. I just wish I was doing a bit more work kind of thing. Because we loved it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard thing to do. The perfect work-life balance is, it's a bit like we talked about behavior. It's very different for all people. Some people are happy working 20 hours a day. They ab it, it's, like, it's like the battery that feeds them and energizes them. And family can sometimes drag them. Other people, you know, I remember my granddad, all he ever wanted was to see the kids happy. And, you know, he just, you'd see him just watching us play. And, you know, as I look back with my mind's eye, he, he was a very simple man, but that's all he wanted. But... We've got to live our own life. We see the world through our own eyes and we've got to choose our own life based on some time to think. And, you know, Churchill was once famously said when he was asked how he decides on what's important, you know, as you've got war going on, there's all these things. How do you fo focus and make the right decisions? And he said, well, it's easy, my dear. I take some time to think each day. And the response was, well, we all think all the time. And he said, no, that's the exact problem. We don't. And if you go to the Imperial War Rooms, you'll see they've got the quiet room next to the typing pool where he used to sit and the armchair he used to sit in. Now, in real terms, he'll have been meditating. Uh, it was his quiet hour, but he's sort of meditating because he was thinking about what's the most important thing and how do I handle that? Most people spend more time planning their next holiday than thinking about what they really want from life, thinking about what is the right balance for them. Is there a balance? And then even when they think they've got it, they can be in a relationship. And I, in, in the mentoring a lot, I can't mentor a business, I mentor a person who has a business, but they also have this other bit outside. Now, we can make the business 100%, but if this other bit isn't, isn't like merging into that and working effectively together, they're still unhappy. So I always think I'm mentoring the whole person. So I often talk about, okay, what are your goals? If you discuss that with your husband or your wife, uh, well, no, no, she don't get involved or he don't get involved. Yeah, but you're a team. And actually, legally, a married couple are a single entity. If you think about yourself as that single entity, you, you, you shouldn't be making decisions independently once you get married. It should be, this is what I need and what I want. This is what, you know, what do you need and want? We don't have these conversations. Where's the overlap? Because we should have selfish needs, wants, passions, but there's got to be an overlap. All too often, people drift apart because they don't bloody share. Well, firstly, they don't think about what is important to them, what balance is right. They don't share it with their partners. And, you know, if your partner says the perfect balance is 50-50 and you're thinking, 
I'd go bloody mad. I want it to be 70-30. That's a conversation you need to have. People are often unhappy because they haven't ever thought of what they truly want and then set a plan and written some goals and followed the goals and the plan to get what they want. Yeah. Um, 2019 Brexit party. Yeah. You was involved? Yeah. Um, Brexit. Yeah. Was it a good thing or was it a bad thing? I think it was a great thing. I think it's turned out to be not such a great thing. And, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, Nigel Farage will still get death threats for it. And um, even more recently, I saw a bit where somebody was attacking him for it. And the country voted for it. We live in a democracy, okay? It was very close. So you've always got to be conscious that half, pretty much half wanted it, half didn't. But it, in a democracy where there's a vote, we fell down slightly on the half that did want it. And if... if if I'd have been in a position to help, I'd have always been cognizant of the fact that you've still got a lot of unhappy people. You've got to kind of try and make that work. I don't believe that, you know, Boris, you could say, made it happen. But I don't believe that he really believed in it. And certainly the Tories didn't. And so we've now got a very diluted form of Brexit, which I think is pretty shit. Now, is that um, the fault of Brexit or is that a fault about execution of what was supposed to be a, 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 a separation, if you like. Now, my mentor used to say to me, Mike, with you, it's always 90%. I've done most of it, Stuart. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of 90% there. He said, if I taught you to cross a raging river and could show you a way to cross that river and get from this side to that side without killing yourself and you'll be over there, you'll be really safe, you'll be really happy, but you only fucking follow me 90%, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to drown. And yet you still keep doing it 90% and then you blame me for why it's not worked. It's not been delivered. But the principle of it, and the press were very careful and clever to make it a racist thing and everything else. For me, and most of the people I knew, there were some bad ones in there, I guess there is in every party. But it was about actually being a global Britain, not having to be part of an old school club called the EU, where we're going to then exclude India, exclude Canada, exclude South America, and say, oh no, because I know you've got lovely tomatoes, Brazil, but we Spain's in our club, so we're going to look after them first. Or, you know... Uh, there's there's a lady in India who's got two degrees and the best surgeon in the world for this, but we got to give the woman in France a job first because that's part of our club. Now, I think actually there was more prejudice inside something like the EU than there was in having a, a Britain that can be independent but globally connected. And that was sort of certainly where I was coming from on it. Uh, and actually economically... I, I still, to this moment, believe with every cell in my body that since we joined the EEC, which is when I was doing uh, A-level geography, was part of A-level geography at school, very quickly it was failing. Within a year or two, it was failing. There were loads of stats, and Margaret Thatcher was showing how it was failing. But then, and it was only ever meant to be a trading block where we uh, combined economic trading power. Suddenly, they're telling us what laws we got to follow. They're telling us how we've got to educate our children. They're starting to morph cultures together to one European culture rather than valuing the fact that Italy had this amazing culture and France, that culture, and Germany. We're all different, but we can be different, but neighbours. You know, you're different to your neighbours. I'm different to my neighbours. I don't have to be the bloody same to be a good neighbour, necessarily. But we don't encourage 
um, critical thinking in schools. We don't encourage critical thinking in education or business. We actually want everyone to think the same and we want to tell them how to think. And sadly, they end up groupthink and they think they're individual, but they've never taken the time to look at things from all perspectives. And all I'd say is, I like people who disagree with me. We have a good debate. We may still end a debate completely opposed to each other's views, but we should be able to debate it and have different views and respect each other's views. And, uh, and my views were in support of an independent Britain that valued all of our different cultural uh, uh, and business uh, excellence but able to trade with the whole world, not forced to trade with a small part of it. Mm. I know there's going to be a small amount of people that... That's going to uh, be loads. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what I was going to say is a small amount of people that are going to play devil's advocate slightly to what you're saying, which is, take for, for instance, this building trade, right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done little developments and slight, slightly larger developments over the last few years, and there is no question that materials and things like that have gone absolutely through the roof now that's probably partly because of what happened with lockdown and covid etc but massively you know leans on the fact that we're gone through this brexit transition and everything is just costing a lot more money what do you say to those people who are feeling the pinch in the building game saying do you know what i really wish we stuck in it because my materials have gone up by three times yeah so during COVID, we built 102 flats, okay? We bought Papworth Hospital, which is 350,000 square feet to convert. I saw those changes as well. But actually, post-Brexit, pre-COVID, whether we're looking at copper, cement, plasterboard, uh, labor, it's all pretty much doubled. It, COVID had a massive effect. A load of those production plants closed down. So. Was that Brexit? Was that COVID? Is it just a cycle? I mean, if you're in the building trade, you'll know that, you know, pre-COVID, let's say in, in my area, there was a, a labourer would get 100 quid, uh, a decorator would get 150 quid, a sparky would get 200 or a plumber would get 200, whatever. Now you've, you've added 50% to all of them. But that's because... Uh, Coming out of COVID, people had saved up a lot of money. More people were willing to spend money. More more jobs were available. Those builders were then in more demand. The day rates went up. I guarantee you, within a year or two, those day rates will come down again, partly because there's not so much work. Those jobs have been done. And it's if you ever study economics, it's a cycle of stuff that happens. Now, is there a Brexit effect? No doubt. But in the long scheme of things, is that a part of our journey? If you go back to um, when the EEC started, costs of product nearly doubled in the three to four years following that. So, you know, it happened when we went into the EU or EEC. Any change has a, a, and I talk about this in my book as well, a kind of hockey stick of change where you go into a negative cycle before you lift because change in and of itself makes you a bit more clunky, different, uncomfortable, you've got to learn new skills, you've got to take new approaches. Change is uncomfortable for a period. But if you truly believe it's going to get you to a better position, it's worth going through it. Now, you know, half the bloody country wanted it, or 51, 52, whatever it was. And and it, it's insulting when people say, oh, you didn't know what you voted for, you're all racist. No, that's not bloody true. In fact, it's just democracy. Now, we can say, that's become um, a communist society where we tell people how they're going to think or we say 
you didn't get much of an education. So you actually, you're going to vote the way your dad voted or the way your mates vote. So we're not going to fucking give you a vote because you're not intelligent because you don't know the you don't know the policies anyway. That's wrong. But we do give people who don't know what they're voting for the vote. You know, in politics, they say, paint a pig red, some people will vote for it. Paint it blue, some people will vote for it. If I said to them, tell me about your MP, what does he stand for? If I said, tell me about this party or that party or this party, what are their policies that you particularly like? They couldn't fucking name them. They're following a group think. Now, but in the whole, there'll be as many of those bad ones in Tories as there are in Lib Dems, as there are in Labour, and you've got to trust in a democracy that the winning vote wins. If it had been the other way, we would have stayed in and there would have been no turnaround. It is what it is. And for me, I think it's the right decision. But I recognise half the country, there or thereabouts, didn't want it. And they're upset. And if I lost, I'd be upset. But it is just the way it is. Mm. We spoke about business and we spoke about politics for some reason, I feel like it's a good transition to talk about the royal family. Okay. Weirdly. Weirdly. Because I feel like a man who's got experience, a man who's gone through, had a lot of success with business, now involved with politics. I'd just like to get your view. Obviously, it was quite a sad time when we lost the Queen, and now we have Prince or King Charles now. Do you think he's... um, do you think it's good to be at the helm of the royal family or do you think, do you have a different view? Yeah, I mean, look, I can only give my opinion. And one of the sayings I love is opinions are like arseholes. Everyone's got one and they're mostly full of shit, you know. So it's just my opinion. You know, who am I? I'm just Mike Green from Peterborough. <laughs> I thought our queen was amazing. I mean, she, the, if you said, I'm going to talk about the queen, who am I talking about? And you could say in any country of the world, They'd think of our queen, probably, you know, Mm. probably the most known woman, respected woman. She was incredible. Prince Charles, I don't have any, King Charles, I don't have any time for. I think what he did to Princess Diana was fucking awful. What the establishment did to her was fucking awful. He should have been able to marry and should have married Camilla in the first place. Clearly, he bloody loves the woman. But, you know, he's shown that he'll... um, do what he's supposed to do even if he don't agree with it and uh and i just i just don't like the bloke he's brought up some kids that are dysfunctional as well now in my opinion and and i don't see people say oh but it's good for our country it brings the tourism well i think windsor castle brings the tourism i think uh, you know people come for the buildings as much as the, the the monarchy and you know is it a good reason to keep it my wife loves the monarchy i dislike the monarchy so even in our house i don't i don't think he's a particularly good king maybe his son will be better because his son will be the mixture of maybe more that is mum ad and the dad ad and the queen ad and mm. stuff but as for pinch king charles i don't rate him and um you mentioned not, about, not my king yeah um you mentioned about the the children actually there this is going to be my next question so i feel i feel like i don't want to feel like this is a question just to get some clickbait but i think it's been hot topic for the last year or so there I, I think anyone who's been in politics or been a very very successful business person which you tick both of those boxes it kind of kind of feels right to get your opinion about it in some weird way uh megan harry do you think she's been a bit of a plague and a poison to the royal family, or has she bring has she brought a new air of has she brought a new energy to the whole scenario? 
Well, it's a bit like if if you tried to say in the bigger the- theme of things, if we go back to Brexit as a kind of way into this as a way, um, it, in the course of history, anything that happens in three or four years or five years or ten years is kind of irrelevant. It's a blip, okay? If what happens in that, though, makes people think more, talk more, consider and become more critical thinking, I think it, it's probably a good thing. So if you take Brexit as an example, more people got engaged with politics than at any other time in history. And everyone should be engaged in politics. It controls every part of our life. You know, cost of things controlled by politics. It's taxation a lot of the time. They could remove that tax if it was important. You know, uh, politics controls everything. So they should be interested. They lend their vote. They should know what they're voting for, so they should get involved. Um, When it comes to politics, what I learned was there are agendas afoot beyond what is front and centre visible. So there were newspaper journalists just telling outright lies against me about me and I don't listen people can say to me you vote Brexit you're a cunt okay that's that's their I respect their opinion they have every right to it but if they tell a lie about me that isn't right you know and the Guardian particularly had some uh, journalists that were more activist I'd say than journalists and the more I've looked into them since I realized they were activists made up some stories now they even start the stories with allegedly or it's alleged but of course, no one reads that. They read the bloody headline. They look at the, the stuff that's in there. And everything that, when you say allegedly, everything that follows, it could be bullshit because they haven't actually said it. Anyway, some of the lies during the campaign I was angry about. I wanted to fight them. And, and the guy who was my advisor at the time said, and he'd worked for all parties, different people here in America. And, so, and he said, Mike, that's exactly what they want you to do. They want you to take your eye off your ball, your head out the game, so you then stop focusing and you're going to lose anyway. It's just like, they want to make you angry. You've got deep pockets, they'll fight it. Having seen that, what the press do and the way that they're happy to lie to drive some of their own agendas, I don't believe that Harry and Meghan have been given a fair game. You know, part of my belief about Princess Di and King Charles is that she was becoming more popular than the royal family. She could get more headlines. She could get more cover pages in media. Uh, and, you know, is it a conspiracy? I don't know. Hide in plain sight. But I don't think if they didn't cause it or the establishment didn't cause it, I think they weren't unhappy that it happened. It was awful. So those kids started losing a mama at, at that age in such tragic circumstances, then having to be paraded in front of the whole world. I mean, God knows what impact that would have on anybody. You then know, because it's come out in in recent years more and more, that the press have deals with uh, politicians and royals and the like, where you do this for us and we'll do that for you, and so on. So agreements are made to control things. You know, just this week, we've got Philip Schofield, didn't we? You know, ITV knew about it. People show he knew about it. They knew about it. It's like, but they cover it and people get sacked because they try and expose it and, and politici- uh, lawyers all get injunctions. So there's all this kind of stuff going on. I think too often we only know what we know. I don't think Harry is a bad guy. He seems to do some really good things. Before Meghan met Harry, she did loads of charity stuff, loads of stuff to empower women, loads of stuff. I mean, before they even met, if you look at her pre-Harry, she was a campaigner. She was doing charity stuff. She was successful in her own right. 
And, you know, part of me thought, oh, that'd be a great marriage. Oh, you know, the Anglo-American relationship's got to be a positive thing. Commoner and royal got to be a positive thing. There was loads of reason why that could have been celebrated and really built on for the greater good. But problem is, Harry was starting to get more popular than the future king. And I do think sometimes there's deals done where we say we're gonna you're gonna have to kind of knock him down a peg or two or we're gonna promote good here but not do any positive there and i i don't know megan i don't know harry i don't know any of them but it seems to me that some people are full guys in life and they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and i don't think that couple have been given a fair rap personally mm. you you touched on something there which i probably i think i I'm on the same page as you, just because of the, the language and tone. But I'm going to ask you directly. Do you actually feel that Princess Diana could have been murdered? Yeah. Oh, it, listen, it's an opinion. Like I said, opinions are like arsehole. We, we all got one. They're often full of shit. My opinion is she was almost definitely murdered. That's just my opinion. But I believe that. And why? Why would she be murdered? Uh, she was outshining the royal family. She was... Um, supposedly, if you read some of the stuff, we don't know what's real and what not real, but the French surgeon who, who 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 tried to help her said she was pregnant at the time. That would have made the mother of the future king pregnant with another man's child. It was a different religion. There all sorts of reasons why, if you look back through history in politics and royalty, people have been gotten rid of for a lot less reason than that. Um... Your background, obviously, we can talk about all the great stuff, being on TV, you know, being involved with politics, founding businesses, selling businesses, your children, everything. But if we take it right to the start, um, we spoke about these two different areas. I think they're all part of Peterborough, actually. Breton. Yep. And also Dogthorpe. Dogthorpe, yeah. Okay. Now, I've seen a couple... I don't know these areas. I've been to Peterborough through times. I didn't even know Peterborough existed until I met Rob Moore. Then I met... Uh, then, obviously, I know Joe Joe. Joseph, who's also from there. I thought, bloody hell, actually, there's a lot of successful... Neville Wright. Yeah, yeah. A lot of successful uh, entrepreneurs have come from this weird place called Peterborough. But anyway, on your on this TV programme you was on, they, they mentioned these places, so I started looking them up and wanted to see what forums were saying of them. Typically, people say they're you know de- deprived, and then people go into like real kind of <clears throat> kind of nasty suggestions like shitholes and blah 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 blah. So, what one is the roughest location? Is it Bre- Breton or is it Dogthorpe? That's a really good question, actually. I, I, what would you think, Chris? <laughs> no. um, in my view, they're both got good. They both got bad. You know, I grew up in Breton. I had happy memories when you come from where I live down in Luton. Uh, and I did. I said I did A-level geography. I looked at the new, new town development that built Peterborough and built all of these estates. So there's Breton, Ravensthorpe, Dogsthorpe, Westwood, Orton. They were... What makes them not as good as they could be today, in my opinion, based on doing A-level geography and looking at new town development and studying new town development, is they had really good things. They were all within a certain um, distance, like I think it was 200 yards of a green space. So there's parks everywhere. Like Breton was built in a figure of eight, so you got a park in the middle of each of the areas and so on. Um, but what they then did is they took over spill and problem families from all around the UK. And we, we although we had family there, Pardon me, we came back from Luton. 
um, and they put them all together in these estates, but they never did anything. And I get into this more as a behavioural profiler and, and on the psychology side. They never did anything to, to, to put the cement to bring those communities together. So what you had is you had people from all around the country leading lives of quiet desperation, not really knowing or talking to their neighbours, trying to make a fresh start in a new town. Uh, it, was, it was not a bad town, but there was no cohesion and no glue put into the way those communities got physically thrown together and geographically thrown together, but they didn't get emotionally or psychologically connected to each other. So that created a bit of a hangover, which is still somewhat changing today but let me look at it another way we got probably the best bronze age settlement in the world in a place called flag fen that was protected by the peat and the bog and so on we have got a 905 year old cathedral that has got catherine of aragon there it is probably one of the finest cathedrals of its age and i mean it's amazing i was a, I was a trustee for seven years henry the eighth uh, particularly liked it, set up the King's School. Catherine of Aragon was put there because, so they say, he loved her and he wanted her to get a sort of as best, uh, as close a state funeral as she could get, but it wasn't appropriate for that to be London politically. So Peterborough was kind of close enough and it had a grand cathedral. Um, we are the fastest growing city in the UK today, 17,500 new people last year. We're one of the, that's in terms of population, we're one of the five fastest growing cities in the UK in terms of economics. Uh, we, we're four international airports within an hour and a half. You can get from London to it in currently 46, but gonna be 38 minutes and so on and so on. There's loads of great reasons, but because it was cheap and because of the new town thing, often you attract uh, people who are trying to start again, whether they come from, you know, in the 50s, 60s, it was Italy, and then Ugandan Indians and Romanians, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, and so on. And they're coming over. And often at that point, they perhaps can't speak the language, they're taking more manual jobs. And it's, it's, it's not high income, because it's not high income, they're not got the level of housing. But what you find is second generation, third generation, when you look at the Italians who came and worked in the brick pits in the 1950s, you know, they're now really successful in the city. Ugandan Indians came up really successful in the city. And each gener each new influx of people needs the time to go through perhaps the more manual labor and then work at getting the education then helping their kids get the education and then moving up. And we're seeing, we've now got an amazing tech, fiber tech loop around the city. So we've got amazing tech um, and we're attracting more professional businesses and companies to the city. So I, to, I am biased. You know, we built a lot of properties there. Savills predict that the property prices will, 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 will grow at 5 to 7% every year for the next five to seven years. I think in 10 years, the prices will be double. It's really cheap at the minute. So I think it's an amazing city. And also, having had offices in Washington, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Auckland, uh, and spending a lot of time traveling around the world, including 18 European countries, what I found is that every city, cities that we think are amazing, oh, Milan or, oh, Sydney, oh, New York, you only have to go a few streets off the main tourist streets and there's shitholes. Every city has got great stuff, has got problems, has got challenges, and you can either bitch about those problems and, and, sh and slag the city off, or you can become part of the solution. So having built business all around the world, when we had our first child, I could have lived anywhere in the world. And financially, I could have lived anywhere in the world. We had, uh, at the time, three homes in America as well. Um, but 
I had roots in Peterborough. Now five generations of my family have li lived in Peterborough and I wanted to be there, celebrate the good things, try and help fix the bad things and be on the journey to make it a better place rather than slag off what's not good about it. To round off this uh, conversation, Mike, um, you know, I know you've been involved with a lot of charities. I think even Ignite, yeah, yeah, Peter, yeah. Peterborough, that, that charity, and they did loads of really good stuff that you're doing. But taking it right to the core, so you're from a deprived place in Peterborough. Listening to your TV program, it's suggested by the person doing the, the narrating, or maybe even yourself, you said this, that I think it was your stepfather that took on four kids not of, of, of his own. And at the time, he didn't feel like it was he was a great father, but on reflection, bloody <clears> hell, you know, for a, for a man, a stranger to take on four kids, that is some, some challenge. And you lived in a caravan, you know, times were tough. Yeah. So the stereotype suggests that you shouldn't be a success. That's what it suggests. Yeah. Based upon numbers and statistics. There's probably an individual out there today that might be going through a very, very, very similar route as you, yourself. And the probably the difference is, is they might be telling themselves, well, because of all this, I can't be a success. What would you tell that individual, man or female today? What is the single advice you can give them right now to say, hang on a minute, yeah. where you are right now is not necessarily where you could be in the future? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'm glad you've asked the question because it does come up from time to time and it's a great question that I'd like to get out there as well because, you know, I can I can give several answers and I will if that's okay. Firstly, just go back to my stepdad. I hated the guy and he was an aggressive, violent guy and I used to, as I was growing up, thinking, you're getting older and weaker, I'm getting older and stronger, I will kill you one day. Sadly, he got cancer and I saw him go from being quite a stocky, burly guy to six stone. But in his own way, during that time, he sort of said, sorry, you realised that, you know, that he wasn't perfect in any way. And don't get me wrong, I don't condone anything he did. But I look back and he did provide for us. He put food on the table. You know, we were feral kids. If he said, do this, we'd like look at me mum and say, do we have to do that? You know, we weren't easy to manage. And he had a pretty shit upbringing himself. So I can now look back with the benefit of behavioural profiling and psychological understanding and think he was uh, uh, an end result of his own upbringing, limiting beliefs uh, and so on, and could never see his way out of anything but that. But then going on to the second part of your question there, bumblebees scientifically can't fly. They're, they've got a fixed wing ratio to their body weight. It says scientifically, if you look at that ratio and everything else, they can't fly. But you know what? No one's told a fucking bumblebee. So it flies anyway. Uh, and sometimes, you know, equally people said when the trains first were built, if you go over 20 miles an hour, your lungs would explode. You wouldn't be able to do that. Before Roger Bannister did the four-minute mile, your heart and lungs would explode if, if you ran a four-minute mile before you could run a four-minute mile. So it's impossible until he did it. And then 300 and something people ran it in the month afterwards because suddenly there was the belief, the knowing that it could be done. So for me, I part of the reason I, my podcast is called Success as a System is to say, if I can look at Charlie Mullins, Alfie Best, Mike Green, you know, Joe Valente, different people and say, these are like bumblebees. They should never have flown, but they just did anyway. You know, and I can look anyone in the eye and say, you can be 
anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do if you're willing to put the work in because it is work. The only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. Everywhere else you've got to fucking work for it. Okay. But if anything, and as a doctor of education, I was awarded by Anglia Ruskin, I'd go the opposite way and say people who have got degrees without that work ethic and that understanding and, and that kind of focus are more likely to not ever be truly successful because often in university, and this is a conversation, a debate I have in education a lot is, stop fucking telling them to get good jobs because a good job is going to cap out at what, 100, 150, 200. But if you get a good business that you're passionate about, and you help enough other people to get what they want, you'll get what you want, you'll grow this amazing fucking business, uh, and you can be anything. Ed, sometimes education makes people think they've got to get a good job. And if the ideal marriage is to have this kind of guttural belief, this hunger, this ambition, and then marry that with education, because with those two things, you truly become unstoppable. And when I spoke to Dave Potts on the podcast, who's the CEO of Morrison's, five failed O-levels, to literally shelf stack, finish school on a Friday at 15, shelf stacker uh, on Tesco's in, on a Monday. Now is the CEO, earned over 4 million quid last year, 110,000 employees, incredible guy. And he didn't need a degree for that, but what he recognized was hard work, hard work, hard work will only get me so far. So he then went back and did a day release. So again, what I, what I realize now, you can't just be successful by hard work. You can't just be successful by being educated. And education goes well beyond school. It's a lifelong thing. Mm. But if you bring the two together, you can be truly unstoppable. You need both. My mantra, which I came up with when I was younger, when I'd done my first ever business, it was a sales company and 95% of those people on that sales floor were men. I've probably said that ratio completely different loads of times on podcasts, but the lion's share of yeah, people yeah. Were, were fellas. I came up with a, a mantra to kind of try and keep everyone in check and to keep focus on the mission. And this is how it goes. Be happy, never content. Yeah. If I were to get Mike Green's version of what does be happy, never content mean to you? I'll bring that to a... if. When I did Covey, Seven Habits, he said, start with the end in mind. It's one of his mantras, if you like. The real end is when you die. And one of the things I've said before is, I remember um, Jim Ron. I think it was Jim Ron, one of those kind of great uh, mm. inspirational motivators from the 50s and 60s, said, a good way to die Actually, it might be Les Brown's. It was Les Brown. Said, a good way to die is with all the loved ones around you saying, I love you. And you say, I love you too. A bad way to die is instead of being surrounded by your loved ones, being surrounded by all the hopes and dreams that you never fulfilled. Because we all have, and, and they say to you, you're dying now. I was your dream. I came just for you. No one else could fulfill this. It was your dream that only you could fulfill. And now I'm going to die with you. I want to die having tried at least to fulfill every dream I can come up with. And that's a changing thing. But certainly I want, a, I know I now will work until I die. Maybe not as many hours, maybe not as many days. But I, part of what I do is growing stuff, fixing stuff, teaching people, helping people. And I can't not do stuff. I am a bit hyperactive. 
But I want to die knowing I at least tried everything that, that I wanted to try. Mm, powerful answer. Mike, thank you very much. It's been an honour. Thank you. Um, I'm really glad I've connected with you, not just because of the podcast, but just to know you as an individual and as a business person. And I am going to be, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, shameless. I was going to say fearless, but shameless and ask you, to open up your black book so I can get some more podcast guests on, but I'll ask, yeah, ask no, you well, that another, well, another time. Um, well, definitely, you should, you should ask Neville. He's a massive inspiration. I would love, and, uh, love to get him on. And he's a great, great guy. The guy from uh, Morrison's as well. That sounds like a good yeah, one. Dave. But we can talk off, off air. Thanks for coming down to Woodbury House. Thanks for sharing your, your journey and, and an insight to your life. And you never know, part two could be down the road at some point. I look forward to it. Come up to my manor and come on my podcast. I would love to. Be happy, never content. Make sure you, you subscribe. And once again, thank you for your time, mate. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.